You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Last week, I encouraged you that all of life should be one of repentance. And as we experience that all of life repentance, there is great joy and renewal and power to live out our Christian faith. Today, we will discuss and focus on God's judgment. And if I would go around and ask many of you what you think of the judgment of God, I bet I would get a variety of answers. One of the greatest stumbling blocks to Christianity, especially among those who are drawn to the idea of a loving, compassionate God, which he is, is the Bible's teaching on judgment. What's interesting is that Jesus talked on the judgment of God, almost one of the most, that was one of his most popular topics that he talked about. We see specifically in Hosea here, in the book, the whole book of Hosea, God making his case for the judgment on the people of God, and for many reasons. This chapter, chapter 9, we see that God's judgment is certainly coming. It is certain coming to his unrepentant people. He is talking to God's people. He's not talking to the other nations. He's specifically talking to the people of the God. He's talking to the church of the Old Testament. So in a world that too has deserted and forgotten God, the announcement of God's judgment is always, as we'll see, through Hosea, the God's people's response, is rationalized away and then passed off as craziness. The people of God during this time of Hosea are no exception to the rule. Hosea's words, which are the very words of God, may seem harsh. And maybe God intends it to, to sound harsh so, they, so that they would truly get it and come to their senses and to repent. But he's calling them and calling us to to be warned, to warn us of the coming judgment that is an absolute guarantee, but it's also all of mercy. So follow along as I read from Hosea 9, 1 through 9. Rejoice not, O Israel, stall not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved to prostitute rages on all the threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vats shall not feed them, and the noon while wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please them. It will be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only, and it shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious stains of silver, thorns shall be there in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it, the prophet is a fool, the man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fouler snare is on his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have been deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gabeah. He will remember their iniquity, and he will punish 
their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, as we gather around this text, this text of judgment, help us to make sense out of it. Help us to to evaluate our own heart and see if there's any sin in our own lives that's not repentant, that, Father, you would reveal that to us today. Father, I pray for those who may not know you, that, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would awaken their soul and that they would see the mercy of Christ as we work through this passage. But, Father, do your work. May you speak through me today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a new uh, comedy sitcom that's on Monday nights called Bob Loves... I'm going to probably destroy the name, but Abish Hola. Bob Loves Abba, Abish Hola. Anybody have seen that? sitcom? A few of us. Well, it takes, it, uh, it's about Bob, who is a successful businessman. His family owns a sock company, very wealthy. He, worked, uh, he works with his, his mom and his, two, his brother and sister. And because of the, the hard work he, and the stress of the job, he, he becomes, I think he has a heart attack. And this is where he meets Abish Hola. Hola, Abish Hola. She is from Nigeria. And she is an immigrant, and, and, but they begin a, a friendship, a relationship. And Bob is, is determined to win her heart. And though, so in this one episode, he's better now, and they begin to become, develop a friendship and a relationship. He is now, she is now taking care of his mom, who had a stroke. She is a nurse who's a caregiver. She lives in, with her, her, her aunt and uncle in a very small apartment. But what's going on in this one episode is that that Bob and Abish Hola get in a fight. They get in a fight because Bob doesn't feel that she's committed into the relationship. And the reason why he doesn't feel that she's committed into the relationship is because she will not have sex with him. Now you see, Abish Hola is a Christian. She's a Christian in this story. She has values that she, she wants to wait till she's married to him before she would have sex with him. And she is, she's sharing that to them, and so they're at an impasse, and so they take a break in their relationship. And in, during this break, uh, she then meets with her friends. And her friends think she's crazy to hold to these beliefs. They, they encourage her, oh, just give in, go ahead, it's no big deal. And yet she's like, she's like no, this, 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 this should, there should be more about this in the relationship. Now, this is all in a comedy, so it all kind of gets flushed out somewhat humorously. I appreciate their willingness to, to cover this topic, in a sense, right? That they're willing to deal with it. Actually, they present someone with that value in a very positive light. But the question for us, what will she do? Will she give in to what the culture says to her to do? Or will she hold on to her, her faith in Christ? Will she hold on to realize that Christ is enough for her in this episode? We don't know. We'll find, I guess future episodes will tell us. But in this episode... It reminds me of something even grander, what's going on with the people of Israel. They have been so impacted by the culture of the day. They've been so caught up in their idol worship. They've been so caught up in pursuing relationships with godless people that they don't even know what defines them anymore. And to the most seriousness of sin that we talked about last week, they have forgotten God. And due to their hanging out with other nations and and seeking idol worship, they began to lack love of God and his ways. And they began to pursue things that they thought would make them happy, not necessarily holy. And we see how they were so much infected and impacted by the culture in which they lived. 
And as Jamie said in the church's message, this weighed heavy on the heart of God. This covenant-keeping God, this God who's been so faithful in this marriage relationship that we've seen described with Hosea and Gomer, he now must exercise judgment due to their ongoing unrepentant lifestyle. God is saying, now there is no turning back, Israel. Punishment is on the way. It is certain. And you will have severe consequences. So this morning, I want us to look at the judgment of God. The party is over. Then I want to look at the nature of sin, the true party spoiler. Then I want to look at the mercy of judgment, the party restored. Let's look verses verses 1 to 6 and look at the judgment of God. Before I delve into this section, I first want to define justice. For God is just in exercising punishment on his disobedient and, and, and depraved people. So justice means that someone is always concerned with two things, being right and being fair. Justice means always doing what is morally right and fair. Our covenant-keeping God always acts with justice. It is the natural expression of his holiness. Remember that God's holiness always sets him apart from everything else that is sinful or evil. The Bible says that God hates sin, And he's declared it wrong. It separates us from God, and it must be punished by death. In the Old Testament, we see it through animal sacrifices. So we see that God God is full of justice when he exercises punishment on his people. For they're living in disobedience. They have forsaken God. And so we come to this text, so he says to them, There is no time for rejoicing, friends. This party that you're celebrating is not good, and you need to stop it. See, God's people have no right to be rejoicing at this time, for they continue, he uses graphic terms, to play the whore, forgetting the faithful love of their faithful God. Let me be brazen here. They are sleeping with the enemy. Again, Hosea, with his graphic description, shows us how far they have gone from God. And why they deserve judgment. Think about it. This covenant-keeping God, holy, sees all of Israel's evil. How they are blaspheming him among the nations through their actions and their allegiances and their seeking of godless counsel. Right? He could have judged them immediately, but he hasn't done that. He's been long-suffering with them. He's been walking with them. He's been forbearing with them. He's been very patient with them so that they would repent and turn to him. And so they are without excuse for their taking advantage of his faithful love. So God more starkly starkly makes his case before his people on why judgment is essential, forthcoming and certain. Another reason for judgment is that throughout his, his journey with God's people from Genesis through now, he's reminding his people of who he is and what he's what they're to do. Throughout biblical history, The covenant-keeping God has been faithful to clearly communicate what is required of his people. That is to pursue a relationship with him through obedience to him. In Genesis, from the very first book of the Bible, God clearly instructs Adam, the Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And, And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
What did they do? They eat it and they die spiritually. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6, Moses calls the people to a new humanity who discern right from wrong and follow the Lord. He says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord had commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for they will be your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. But Moses' call went mostly unheeded. But the covenant-keeping God was not done. Later, Solomon gave hope that God's people would flourish as his representatives. When he asked for wisdom to discern, he says this in 1 Kings, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For what is able to govern, for who is able to govern your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. But again, that didn't last long. Idol worship began to overtake them. And that's why Isaiah exhorts when, to his, when he was prophesying to Israel, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. See, this is where pe- the people of God were during the time of Hosea. They were looking at good and calling it evil, and they were looking at evil and they were calling it good. They were walking in darkness and not in light. And so, as a result, God expresses his judgment in the following way. Look at verse 2. They will be deprived of their prosperity. They will be deprived of their prosperity. Why? So they, they might see the vanity of their worship of false gods. Verse 3 gives us another expression of God's punishment. They will be defeated and held captive and in bondage from a foreign nation. They will be defeated and held captive and in bondage from a foreign nation. Egypt here, the mention of Egypt, is probably symbolic of captivity and bondage, right? They were once in Egypt. The God's people once were in Egypt and they were enslaved and in bondage. God freed them from that, right? He redeemed them from that. But now they're going back into that same bondage through Assyria. And they will lose their distinctiveness as God's people. Listen to that. They are losing their distinctiveness as God's people by being compelled to eat, this passage says, unclean meat contrary to the law of Moses. Again, they're back in slavery. The third punishment or judgment we see, they will cease to be fruitful and joyful. The passage that talks about wine vast or wine offerings was originally appointed with the morning and evening sacrifices to symbolize joy and fruitfulness in the land that God gave them as a gift. And God is saying to them, this is no more. Their sacrifice no longer will be pleasing to God, and they themselves will not experience any pleasure in providing that to the Lord. The sacrifices of of atonement of sin, of dedication, of fellowship, will all be in vain and empty now because of their sinfulness. The covenant-keeping Lord will not honor their sacrifices, for it is a superficial worship. See, It will be a time of sorrow for the people, for they will be far away from their promised land, and they will not be able to offer their first fruits or observe their daily thanksgiving. The remembrance of God for the people of God during this time will no longer bring delight, but regret because judgment was upon them. In verse 5, another 
judgment on the people. They will be compelled. This is, this is, it might sound awful, but they will be compelled to acknowledge the grace and blessing of the Lord in former days. Hosea pictures here in this verse the perplexity of God's people in the midst of their bondage on the occasion of their great religious festivals. They will be forced to admit that though, through sin they have forfeited these blessings. And then the last judgment we see, they will experience loss of life and destruction. Egypt shall gather them up, the passage says. Memphis shall bury them. This is a striking play on Hebrew words, gather and bury. Memphis had one of the largest burial grounds in Egypt. This may depict survivors fleeing in the opposite direction from the advancing Assyrian army, or may also be symbolic of loss and destruction when Syria drives them into exile. Nonetheless, we're reminded that God's judgment is on them. It is coming. See, God has demonstrated much grace and patience with Israel. But due to their ugly depravity, they will be judged. And let's look deeper into the nature of their sin that initiated this judgment. Verses 7 and 9, the true party spoiler. See, Israel's depravity has been clear throughout Hosea's prophecy. Yet in Hosea 9, its depths are plumbed even further. That is why Hosea beats the drum. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. One commentator describes this as deadly repetition. That's how severe it is going on with them. God will not be mocked. And what Israel has sown in unfaithfulness to the covenant-keeping, loving God, Israel will, will reap in form of judgment and punishment. With wrath poured out, the covenant-keeping God will be Lord over his people. In fact, God's wrath has already been going to happen in the destruction brought in 733 B.C. by, by Assyria. So let's see why people deserve this harsh judgment. Look at verse 7 through 9. They resented God's word. They, get, they had great hatred towards God and his word, and they have fallen in grave sin and rebellion. First, they resented God's word. Look at verse 7. It says, A fool is the prophet, and the man of the spirit is mad. Now, there's a variety of ways to interpret this phrase, but let me just say this. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, is being charged with being stupid. That he's out of control with his excessive and erratic ravings and teachings and warnings. But you know what? Hosea is in good company. He's not alone. God's people have resented God's word many times. Prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and Jesus himself. God's people simply do not believe what Hosea announces can be true, and so they attribute his words to craziness, much like Abishola's friends when she began to share with them. She's crazy to keep her conviction. She's crazy to follow the ways of Christ. But we see that this resentment then leads to hatred. They have great hatred. What does it say in verse 7? Great iniquity and great hatred. God's people cannot stand the prophetic charges being leveled against them, and they finally turned against Hosea and, and in a sense, towards God in hatred. Friends, hating the prophet for speaking truth is basically saying that they hate God. Not only have they forgotten God, now 
They hate God and his word. And yet, Hosea doesn't give up on them. Even though he's being faced with this hostility, he continues to speak and reminds them that he is the watchman. In verse 8, he's the one who's watching over them. He's the one warning them of upcoming danger from this watchtower. He's Again, God is still trying to get their attention. He's still trying to help them come to their senses. More important, we see he's the watcher with the watcher with his God. Again, struggling, reminding us that his message comes from the presence of God with him, that God himself is with him. God himself is speaking through Hosea. But again, look at the response to Hosea at the end of verse 8. Yet a fowler, the fowler snail in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They look with disdain and hate at his care, laying fowler's snare in all his ways as if he was a wild animal to be caught. Don't miss it. Showing again nothing but hostility towards Hosea and towards God. In fact, a side note here, in the house of his God refers to the whole region of Israel, which is the covenant-keeping God's land. And we also see that depravity doesn't stop with resenting God or hating God. But in verse 9, it says they have fallen in, they have, it shows us that they have fallen in grave sin and rebellion. It says they deeply corrupted themselves in the days of Gibeah. This reference is found in Judges 19. Here we see the following gross sins of God's people. Again being repeated, rampant lust, sexual perversion, murder, callous disregard of both the covenant God and other human beings. Additionally, it points to the condition of Sodom before the Lord destroyed it due to rampant sexual perversion. See, this is a point of Hosea into which God's people have now come apart from God, restraining them, apart from God causing some intervention. There are no limits where sin will take us. Israel cannot rationalize her guilt. Punishment is coming. That is why the psalmist cries out, keep back your servant from presumptuous presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. The Apostle Paul writes concerning sin in Romans 7, I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And in his sin wretchedness, he passionately cries, Who will deliver me from, such, from, from, from this? Who will deliver me from this mess? See, we are utterly helpless against the power of sin apart from the intervening hand of God. Which brings me to my final point that we must not forget we must always remember, and it must be our motivation to live a life of repentance and a life of pleasing to our covenant-keeping God, the mercy of judgment, the party restored, the true party restored. God's pronouncement of judgment to Israel is full of mercy. He wanted them to see the depths of their sin that caused separation from him and hoped that they would return and repent. He sent them back to Egypt, to Assyria, as consequences for their sin with the hope that they will come to their senses, which is remembering God's faithful love, remembering his promises so that he will, they will return to him and to repent and be restored. God provided intervention upon intervention throughout the redemption story, even for Hosea's during this time, yet God's people resisted at time and time again. And the question for us as we look and as we evaluate our own hearts, what about us? Are we resisting aligning our lives to our God, 
to our king of Jesus? Are we refusing to repent of seeking those temporal things to make us happy and satisfied? Are we giving in to the temptations of our culture today that says to be and to do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, go for it? Are we resisting how God has designed us to be and to do? Are you ready for a total intervention? Are you ready for a complete restoration? Our desire, God desires to intervene, and we're reminded of Paul's joyful answer to his own question, who will deliver me from my sinful mess? What does he say in Romans 7? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus. You can respond to me. Come on, I'm going to hear you. Are you awake? Are you awake? Thanks be to God through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you. Paul beautifully and powerfully reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he became, he came to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me say it more frankly and radically. Jesus became an abomination. Jesus became an abomination for you and for me so that we could experience the mercy of God. So that we will no longer be separated from him, that we would be spared God's ultimate judgment and wrath. Amen? Now because he has intervened to save us from judgment, we are now able to be, to be his gospel representatives to the world in which we live. Again, here's Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I think we have that passage. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that this one who has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, underline, capitalized. We no longer live for them ourselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we are once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard them thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, what is he? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this from God, this intervention, right? This restoration. And through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, what are we? Ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We employ on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. To God. And so since we are new creation, since we are now representatives of Christ, three truths I want us to take away about God's judgment and the mercy that we see in God's judgment. God's judgment is in, is in Christ's hands, freeing us to trust his character. As human beings, we have an innate sense of right and wrong. We have a conscience. God has given us that. We have a desire for pleasure we have a desire to pursue justice, and we act on our instincts as believers. But our ability to exercise justice is limited. Sin deserves a response, the strongest possible response, but we aren't able to provide it. As scriptures reveal, there's only one who can, the long foretold, the warrior savior who crushes the serpent's head that, that Genesis 3.15 talks about. You see, the work of judgment, God tells us, is not in our hands. It is in Christ's hands. For vengeance belongs to the Lord, Paul reminds us in Romans 12. And how good is this? We are frail, frail. We are fallen. We are finite. But God is not. But Christ is not. He is not limited. He is not powerless. He does all things well. 
So the work of justice flows truly from his holy nature. And we are free to, make, to take great comfort from this truth. The burden of carrying out judgment and making the world just does not ultimately fall on us. It falls on Jesus. What a relieving, merciful, unburdening truth that is. Two, I want us to come away with. God's judgment means standards will be upheld. Justice is in short order in our world. Everywhere we look, right? Watch the news. We find suffering and pain and death. Because of the curse of the fall, because of Adam and Eve sinning, the world seems to the, the, world seems to the natural mind a cosmic accident, a grand lottery we all eventually lose. But this is not reality. Reality is a righteous father. Listen, a forgiving savior, a life-giving spirit. Reality is justice on the march, drawing near, in range. What happens, though, our age is so theologically and biblically adverse that we have lost sight of God's judgment and vengeance. This doctrine does not fit well in our soft, therapeutic, best life now kind of Christianity. There's a lot of blessings in such a system, but little justice. Christ becomes a brand consultant to the upward mobile. I love that. that that's not mine. I borrowed that. The Christ becomes a brand consultant to the upwardly mobile. The doctrine is also largely missing a garden variety, new way to be a Christian Christianity, which promises equity, grace, better social conditions, radical acts, but little judgment of evil by the avenging king. Christ ends up here as a community organizer with a gift for resistant activism. Such puny visions of Christian faith they still speak of divine love and Christ's cross, but they fail, listen to me, they fail to see that the cross is neither a mere display of affection nor an improvement program. The cross shows God unleashing grace. Listen, unleashing grace in Christ as God upholds justice through Christ. This effective death for sinners does not cancel future judgment. Jesus says he's coming again to judge the world. Are we going to be judged in Christ where we're spared his judgment because Christ has taken our judgment? Are we still living in repent, unrepentant sin and not a follower of Christ? We will face judgment. Judgment is coming. For the Christian, yes, that judgment has been met in Christ. We've accepted that. But those who have not yet accepted that, they will face judgment. Sin will be dealt with. Until that fateful day, Caesar bears the sword. The state rages just war and carries out retributive justice. Christians can testify to the goodness of such common grace, but we uphold standards of right and wrong, knowing God has not gone soft. He has not canceled the need for all accounts to be settled with him. One day, Christ will return. Justice delayed now, but it is closing in. And the last thing I want to leave us with, that God's judgment destroys evil, an outcome we rightly, all rightly desire. God's judgment destroys evil, an outcome we rightly desire. As Christians, we should zealously desire the end of evil. We should pray for the abortion industry to be swallowed up. We should cry out for the end of racism and all types of slavery, including sex trade. We should yearn for the end of murder, casual cruelty, for genocide, for sexual wickedness, and 10,000 other evils and impose them both in word and deed. The work has already begun, church. When Christ died, he washed his bride with his precious blood. 
And when he rose again from the grave, he triumphed over death, securing victory for his people. The end of death's reign has enacted through Christ's finished work, yet we rate the consummation of this route. The strong man Satan is bound. His house is plundered, but it isn't cast into hell of fire quite yet. Soon he will be. And on that day, the father has appointed Satan will come to an end. And it's a loving God who drives wickedness out of the land. Sin will not cease because of the vague path and some cosmic toward goodness. The end of sin will come because Jesus will split the sky, make the whole earth his threshing floor, and this truth should inspire surging hope for all of us in the church. But it also should drive us to be active in sharing our faith, remembering that the blunt force of all Christian doctrine of judgment has often awakened the slumbering heart. We do not want any sinner, we don't want any friend who's without Christ, or any neighbor who's without Christ to taste the wrath of God, do we? So we pray, we preach, and we implore image barriers to flee sin and to trust Christ as the one and only who can make them clean, make them new, to be that new creation. So back to the TV show, Bob Loves Abishola. What would I say to Bob? What would I say to Abishola if I was their pastor, if I was their friend, if I was their neighbor? First, to Abishola, stand firm in your faith. Trust God's work in you. His word continue to guide you. You are a new creation. He's made you new. And you now can live for him and not for the approvals of others. Jesus' ways are so much better than any current day culture can give you. They will, not, they will let you down. They will disappoint. They cannot take away any shame or guilt or the penalty of sin. Rest in Jesus. Find strength in him to stay pure in your faith. To Bob, I would say, I get how you might think sex is the answer to your relationship. We understand that temptation. I understand that temptation. We all long for something. But I know another who understands that temptation even more than I do, and yet he didn't sin. You know what? There is some, something better than getting your needs met in sex. That something better is Jesus Christ. He is the answer to your longings. He is the answer to your loneliness. He is the answer to physical needs that you may want. Come and experience forgiveness. Come and experience new life. Come and experience gospel peace and joy in Jesus, for he's died for you and rose for you. Listen, and I'll end here. Jesus is very challenging and yet comforting words. But first seek the kingdom of God. That's what Hosea's people were missing. The Israel were missing that. They were not seeking God's kingdom or his righteousness. So Jesus reminds us because of his work on our behalf, he says, first, first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we are thankful that Jesus, and Jesus we see where mercy and justice meet. Father, we who are brought into relationship with you, Lord, we who have been saved from that, that judgment in Christ, Oh, Father, we are thankful for that. Father, help us then to be faithful to how you desire for us to live. 
Help us to love your word, not resent it. Help us to love you and not hate you. Help us to know that as we follow you, that your spirit will work to help us to be your representatives, your message of healing, your message of grace, your message of comfort, your message of holiness to a world that desperately needs it. Help us to know that we can stand firm in our faith in Christ. And Father, those who may not know you, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring to mind their need of you. Holy Spirit, that you would drive them to the cross, that they would see more clearly the message of the gospel, that Christ has come for sinners to save them, to restore them, to renew them, to save them from judgment. Father, work. Do your work of grace even among those this morning. Father, help us always to trust you in this process. Help us to desire to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. Father, we pray this, Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, help us. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.